Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the Church Podcast, where we investigate one historical figure or event. We dive into the scripture, and then we make one, at least one, theological statement. It's good to have you with us. Um, However you're listening to this, um, whenever you're listening to this, welcome, welcome, welcome. The title of this podcast, this time, this is... Well, I just say this is a one-off. So I'll tell you before the title, I'll say this is one-off. The, the last two months, we have released a podcast that's actually three parts. So we released it on the fourth Sunday of the month, and then um, in, in the next week, we released the next two. But this podcast, maybe a little bit longer than the other uh, podcasts you've listened to, but we're putting everything into this one recording. So I just want to start out with uh, this idea, okay, Um, this thought. And the thought is this, the only reform that is legitimate and lasting is that which is tethered to timeless truth. I'm going to say that again. The only reform that is legitimate and lasting is that which is tethered to timeless truth. Now, what is reform? Now, a a basic idea of what reform is, is it's to make changes to something, typically a social, political, or economic institutions or practice. And we have a very good um, illustration of this in the United States as we live in a time where many people are marching and they have agendas and they're putting groups together and, and they're um, they're standing up for what they feel needs to be reform or reforms that should take place in the systems that they live in. And that gives us kind of an idea of what reform is. But can reform be bad? And how far is too far when it comes to reforming. And when does reform become revolution? When does reform become revolution? And is there a difference? There's this, a, there is a historical um, example of this, the American Revolution, the 13 colonies that were the colonies of the British Empire of England. They came together, created a Continental Congress, um, Continental Congress, um, made a declaration that they were no longer a part of England. They kind of put together a band, a group. They made an army under the leadership of a general at the time, George Washington, and they fought and won their freedom, uh, their liberty um, from England. And this was under the, the, uh, the banner of no taxation without representation. The colonies felt as though they were being taken advantage of, so they felt like there was something that needed to change, a reform that needed to take place. So they stood up for that and actually made that happen. And I believe there's a difference between the American Revolution and revolutions that have happened throughout the years. And it is back to our thought that the only reform that is legitimate and lasting is that which is tethered to timeless truth. And we see that in the writing of the Constitution. We see, I mean, the the, the words that we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, some may say that I don't think we've, we really have reached some of those ideals, and I would agree with that. But I think that what makes 
our country great um, in the sense of the, the form of government that we have is that what we're doing all the way back to the revolution that separated us from England to now is a tethering to truth or to a mission statement of sorts that guides the direction we go. So this is important. Reform on its own, which is blatant change of we, we just want change or revolution that takes place where we just want change typically is not something that's going to last or probably even break the surface of change or reform that's needed. The undergirding, the foundation for true reform comes from timeless truth. Timeless truth that lasts and lasts through the years. So in this podcast, I want to teach you about a man whose name is Haldrick Zwingli. Haldrick Zwingli, and I have heard different pronunciations of that name, but that's what we're going to go with during this podcast. And I would challenge you as we move through his life to not just think about the events as they're taking place, although those are very interesting and insightful, but think about what he thinks. Think about how he translates what he thinks into passion that then flows out of him into action. And what we'll find in Zwingli's life is there are times where we see him in humility standing up for what is right. And then we have times where based on what he believes is right, he 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 does things that are would be a bit repulsive, I think, to us. I'd say repulsive. And what's interesting about Zwingli is sometimes Zwingli does impulsive, repulsive things, so both impulsive and repulsive things, standing up for real truth. So you have a a character who, if you if you hear what he believes, you say, that's exactly what I believe. And then you're like, but but I don't know if you should be heading off to war um, and, you know, destroying people or, or taking, um, taking control of an entire city as almost a theocracy to make sure everybody else believes what you believe, which are both things that we're going to get into that, that he uh, engaged in. So we need to kind of ask ourselves a hard question of, is it... Are there wrong ways to stand up for what is right? Say that again. Are there wrong ways to stand up for what is right? So let's just do a bit of historical setting. It could be the backdrop of Huldrych Zwingli's life. Now, he lived in what was called the Swiss Confederation. Now, there were 13 states or cantons what they were called, in the Swiss Confederation. Thirteen. Interesting. Reminds me of the 13 colonies in the American, in the Americas. They were affiliated with common lordships, but they were also unique to themselves. Now, unlike the modern state of Switzerland, which the country operates much like ours under one federal government, 
Each 13 cantons were independent and they conducted their own domestic and foreign affairs. At times, they would even go to battle with each other. Now, this is different than the American colonies. Each state or canton formed its own alliances within or outside of the Confederation. So they really operated as if they were separate countries, yet they had traditions, language, um, up until the time of the Reformation, religion, um, trade, many systems would pull them together as a confederation, but they still were separate to the point where they would even battle against each other. The relative independence served as a basis for conflict during the time of the Reformation when the various cantons divided between different confessional camps. So to put things kind of in perspective, uh, Martin Luther he puts on the Wittenberg door 1517. 1517, he puts his, he puts his, his theses, he puts his confessions, he puts his issues with the Catholic Church and, and how to reform the church, the Catholic Church, on the Wittenberg door. Now, there were, there were several places in Europe where reform was taking place. They would feed off of one another for sure. But this was starting to spring up. Spring up meaning different areas of Europe kind of had to make their stand whether or not they were going to be defenders of the papacy, meaning Catholicism, Roman Catholicism, under the Pope in Rome, or to embrace Protestantism. Protestantism. Now, around the same time, Europe was in a very volatile state. Actually, throughout European history, there's, it's been in a volatile state many, many times. For centuries, the relationship with the Confederation's power, neighbor France, determined the foreign policies of the Swiss just by making uh, moves. And as they moved as a very strong, large nation, France, then the Confederation moved kind of with them in order to uh, kind of keep up with them. Um, think about the uh, policies of the United States and then on its border being the country of Mexico, the country of Mexico not having the, um, the same economic or political system. They tend to kind of move in the orbit around the United States. But even still, it's important to understand that the Swiss Confederation formed part of the Holy Roman Empire. So France would be to the west, and the Holy Roman Empire made up of a lot of what we would think of as Austria, Germany, um, geography. If you understand geography, it would be more to the east, so French, France to the west, um, the Holy Roman Empire to the east. But there were uh, wars that came together in a huge, huge battle, a war that uh, concluded in 1499 called the Swabian War. And at that time, the Confederation, the Swiss Confederation, became independent of the Holy Roman Empire in general, meaning that the Holy Roman Empire and their emperors could not call on the 13 Swiss states, the cantons, to send men to be a part of the wars that the Holy Roman Empire were fighting. And there were continual, continual wars after that. But after the break from the Holy Roman Empire, the Swiss Confederation, the 13 cantons, the 13 states, 
they started to adopt the system called the mercenary pension system. And in this system, warriors, soldiers, primarily young men, were sent by the authorities of the cantons to fight for other nations, and then those nations would pay the authorities, the government of that canton. So they were mercenary in the sense that they were paid for their ability to fight and their willingness to fight, but the funds did not go to the young men and to their families, but instead the funds went to the authorities of the state that they were a part of. The religious factions of Zwingli's time debated in a very intense way of the merits of sending young Swiss men to fight in foreign wars, mainly for the enrichment of the the Canton authorities. They saw it as taking advantage. They saw it as not just in why someone should take up arms. Now, what I want to do is, just now that we have the backdrop of the history, let's really get into what happens in Zwingli's life. Now, it's important to understand that there will be names that I'll bring up, places, maybe references that we just don't have time to get into, but you may remember or think of some of these and say, I, I, I know, who, I've, I've heard of that person or I know who that person is. And those names are meant as signposts to help you know kind of where Zwingli's life laid in the midst of the Protestant Reformation. Other than Martin Luther, Heinrich, Bollinger, and John Calvin, the most important early reformer was Ulrich Zwingli. He for sure was a first-generation reformer, and he is regarded as the founder of the Swiss and the Swiss Protestantism. So he is regarded as the founder of the Swiss Protestantism. Furthermore, history remembers him as the first reformed theologian, which is a little bit different than Calvinism, and we'll get into some of that. Zwingli was born January 1484 and died October 1531, and he was a leader in the Reformation in Switzerland. Now, before we get into his life, um, and I, I'm going to jump right up to his, um, i tell you a little bit about when he's younger, and I think it's important to talk about his education and right into some of the things that um, make Zwingli's story Zwingli's story. I want to say this on the outset, as we begin to talk about this, Zwingli had an uncanny ability to be deeply convicted and allow teaching, preaching, and the work of the Holy Spirit to change the hearts of men while using power, position, political power, and position to force or try to force others to believe what he had been what he has been convicted of all right let me say that again he has an uncanny ability to be con- convicted convinced of something but also be so intense that he wants to force that down everybody's throat and that is what will be the conflict with this man this man who obviously he's, he's a genius god uses him 
but sometimes his passion, he just jumps ahead. And I think it's going to be a lesson to all of us that, as we've talked about before, there is a bad way of doing good things at times. So, now Zwingli's father, like many of the men we've talked about before, um, saw his son as being extremely gifted. His father also had means. He was extremely wealthy in the canton he lived. So he sent Zwingli to what would basically be high school for us, high school. And uh, during this time, he succeeded in every way possible academically. And his father said, I want you to, I, I, I would love you to, for you to take what you're learning um, and I want you to become a friar. So be a part of the Catholic Church system. But Zwingli says with a uh, grin, probably the way we read about him, uh, no, not going to happen. So instead, his father kind of relents and he sends him to some of the most amazing universities in Europe. In 1498, Zwingli's father sent him to the University of Vienna, where he became a, which had become a center of classical learning. There he studied philosophy, astronomy, physics, and ancient classics. In 1502, he enrolled at the University of Basel. Now we're in kind of graduate school, if you think about it that way, and received a fine humanist education. Now in class in graduate school, Zwingli came under the influence of Thomas Wittenbach, professor of theology. And at this point, this is a very important point in his life, at this point he began to be aware of the abuses within the Catholic Church. So he, he was learning things in school, and it's like a seed began to kind of grow in his brain. And he also taught Latin as he pursued further classical studies. So real scholar here. So he decides to, he's going to make a little money on the side teaching Latin while he gets his bachelor's degree in 1504 and his master's degree in 1506 um, from the school, Basel. Um, and then Zwingli was ordained to the priesthood in the Catholic Church. Um, and what's interesting about this is we know he is already concerned. He already has things going on inside of him. And some of us may be, well, it's kind of shady that he had these concerns, yet he still went on to become a priest. Here's, here's something I found really interesting. So one of the things that would happen prior to the Reformation is um, a, so in order to have a, a position within a church, um, a church leader, a priest, a pastor, friar, whatever it was, would pay like a leadership tax. So in order to be a leader, um, the church leader would pay a tax to the prince of the area. So when Zwingli was ordained to the priesthood in the Roman Catholic Church, he began to, he began to pay for his spot he immediately purchased a pastorate at Galeris. So, okay, so he's, this is how this works. So he's ordained to the priesthood, and I'm a, I'm a, I'm a 
priest. Now where do I go? Ah, he has some means, so he pays um, to be a pastor at Galeris, his boyhood church. That's great. Paying money to a prince for a church position was pretty common practice before the Reformation and a pretty uh, good indicator of why the Reformers kind of saw the system as being corrupt, those types of things. Most of his time was spent uh, preaching, teaching, pastoring. He devoted himself to private study, Latin, Greek. We have a lot of information that Zwingli loved the, the, old, the old languages, so the original Greek, the original Latin. But he also, it's very interesting because he also became very obsessed with philosophers and poets of old, all the way back to the Roman Empire. Um, ways of thinking, the Greeks, how do we do things. He began reading humanists, which were, were they weren't anti-church, but humanists would see things and say, let's look at things specifically, let's make arguments instead of just assuming things are the way we're told they are. And he was drawn, as most people, most men and probably women of his day, to Erasmus and was uh, loved his scholarship and just loved, loved um, his, his, the way Erasmus thought. So he actually had the ability to have a kind of letters going back and forth with Erasmus, which we see in um, history books about Zwingli that this was very important to him. Um, during his first service at Glasserus, where he was the priest, uh, Zwingli twice served as a chaplain to bands of young Swiss mercenaries. We talked about mercenaries a little bit. Swiss soldiers for hire were in great demand across Europe and were a major source of income for the Swiss cantons. Remember, the cantons would enlist um, their, let's call it their, their national guard, you know, for their state. They'd enlist them. They'd send them over and to, and wherever they send them, the country they fight for um, or the prince they fight for would pay the canton for the fighting and for the soldiers that were going over there. The problem is you had these young men who were basically forced to go fight um, so that the so that the uh, government back in their state would make money and they won it. So it was almost like a slaved um, like slavery in, in the sense that uh, you were forced to fight and you had you, there's nothing that you got for that, but you had to keep going. Um, even the Pope had uh, had Swiss guards around him during this time, so he was he was with the soldiers. He was uh, like a chaplain for them, and uh, um, even the Pope thought this was a great thing to have Zwingli, a man like Zwingli, part of the, the crew. Um, as a chaplain, though, Zwingli witnessed many of these men fighting, slaughtering each other, horrific things, arms being cut off and bowed and all, you know, I can go through all these things, but he, he saw the most horrible, horrible things that men can do to men. And he saw Swiss killing other Swiss. So he saw men, young men that were from one canton being hired to fight other men from another canton and who are hired from another group. So you have Swiss men going to battlefields outside of the Swiss states and fighting each other as mercenaries and dying 
and Zwingli's seeing this, and dying, and then the money, you know, to be paid for these men and their service goes back to the states. I think you're, I think you're kind of getting the idea how messed up that whole system was. Um, and, and, and Swingley, one of the things that priests would do is they would uh, administer last rites. You know, that we've seen that, that that happens now. Priests will come in when a person's getting ready to die, and they do their last rites, and that's something that priests do. Well, he did that for thousands and thousands of men that were just brutally, they were about ready to die in battle, and it affected him big time. Um, and Swingley came to deplore the evils of this system and begin to actually preach against it. So this is one of the first times we see Swingley go from just preaching and teaching scripture to actually going a little bit in a social direction and preaching using scripture, but preaching against the idea of the mercenary system of fighting. His final year at Glarus uh, was pivotal. Glarus, the place he was, the, the priest. It was at this time that Zwingli began to think of scriptures more as Martin Luther did. Instead of just um, chants back and forth, he had what we'd call an evangelical understanding of scriptures. And then Erasmus, who he cherished, we talked about, published a Greek New Testament, the Greek New Testament that year, um, and Zwingli absolutely loved it. And it said that he memorized Paul's epistles in the original language. He memorized them in the original language. It's intense. Um, now, all of this happened about a year before Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the Wittenberg door. So that's something to keep in mind. So all this that I've been talking about is has happened before Luther nailed his 95 theses. I think this is important because I think that what we can, what, what it's, it can be easy for us to say, well, there's the Roman Catholic Church and then there was Luther, and then Luther creates this kind of, you know, thing that takes place, and now we have Protestantism. There are Protestants now. But instead, that is not what is actually happening. The systems within the Catholic Church, there were men of God all over Europe probably in, in different parts of the world, wherever the Catholic Church reached at that time, which was, which was great, um, even into the New World, um, South America and places like that, and, and, uh, and parts of North America. And what is so interesting is God was beginning to awaken. There's an awakening in the hearts of men and women around all around the world that started to, to think this system is not right. So it's far bigger than Luther had, had a light bulb go off, which he is, we can give him a lot of praise for sure. But we need to think in terms of God was opening the eyes of people all around to say this is not what it's supposed to be. He's bringing about a remnant who become the, the, the reformers. Now, thanks to his studies, um, he had no idea to, anything about Luther's ideas, but thanks to his, his studies, he began to preach basically the same thing Luther would soon start preaching. So he actually preaches stronger in a Protestant-type way than Luther did because Luther nails the 95 Theses and he kind of moves and, and you have this kind of slow burn that's taking place. But all along, you know, up north, 
in the Swiss, um, you have Zwingli preaching. And he said, he said this, he wrote, Before anyone in the area had ever heard of Luther, I began to preach the gospel of Christ in 1516. Now, 1517 is when the 95 Theses were um, nailed to the door. I started preaching the gospel before I had even heard Luther's name. Luther, who, whose name I did not know for at least another two years, had definitely not instructed me. I followed the scriptures alone. First of all, that that's a Zwingli type quote right there. I mean, I won't use tons of Zwingli quotes, but you, you, you kind of get this like aggressive pridefulness a little bit where he's like, I, I didn't even know Luther's name. I didn't even know who that guy was. And I was preaching the gospel. Okay, so this is the kind of attitude sometimes we're going to get from him. It's kind of like some of the pride I think we're going to get from him. Um, that's in his own words where I read that and I say, okay, well, okay, because he's literally addressing it three times, that one quote. It's like, okay, we get it. We get it. You were preaching things before Luther was. That's great. We, uh, we get it. And he said, I followed scripture. Well, so did Luther. So just calm down a little bit, Zwingli. But we see this is kind of how he, he does his thing. Now, his popularity continued to grow in Zurich, Zurich as being his the place he's been ministering. And in 1518, he was given the title of the people's priest. And I know that sounds very creepy. It sounds very cultish and creepy to me. But he was given that office, and how Zurich was set up is they had a little bit of like a— uh, um, you had like 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 the 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 leaders were both religious and political, and they're kind of intertwining. And so this is actually a political role for him um, at Zurich, and this was a significant position. And at this at this place, he would also preach and teach. So he had leadership, but he had a place where he would preach and teach. Um, at this moment, he just kind of went wild with his reform thoughts. He immediately broke from the normal practice of preaching through the church calendar because basically priests would just follow a, the lead of a prompting of a book and just say, you preach on this this day, you preach on this this Christmas, now we preach on this. And he said, instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to preach through whole books of the Bible, which now we call the exegetical preaching. On January uh, 1st, 1519, his 35th birthday, Zwingli started a series of expository sermons through Matthew that were drawn from his exegesis of Greek of the Greek text. He continued this consecutive style until he had preached the entire New Testament. That is awesome. Because I would love to hear someone do that. And, and I would say, actually, now, I, every, I, I've, I think I've said this before on a podcast, but for the love of God, like, if I hear one more sermon that sounds exactly like an Andy Stanley sermon, I will, I'm, gonna, I'm going to lose it. Because, you know what, there's so much meat in the scripture. And if you're taught and if you read, you don't have to be a seminary student. You have to be a grad student. You just have to be someone that is, is aware of the fact that the Bible is the word of God and it can speak for itself. So steady the best ways of how to communicate that than work through the Bible. And I think it is so cool. One of the coolest things that I think, honestly, I think Zwingli decides to do is he says, I have this position. I'm going to preach. 
I'm going to make decision that I'm, th- I'm throwing out that calendar. I'm throwing out the little reading book. It's basically like a, I don't say it because some of you love devotional books. I'm not saying anything about that, but I, I envision him taking a devotional book that has a verse a day and just kind of throwing it over his shoulder, like into the fire and just opening up his Bible and saying, you know what? Let's just stick in here for a while. How about let's stick in here forever until the day I die? And that's what he will do. He will preach until the day he dies. And uh, it preached that way until the day he dies. In 1519, um, the outbreak of the plague that destroys uh, not most, but a, a lot of Europe, um, it's, uh, uh, it, it, it hits Zurich. Um, 2,000 of its 7,000 citizens die. So kind of do the math on that men, women, and children. So where he is the people's priest, where he is the main pastor, imagine how many funerals and um, last rites types of things he's doing for 2,000 people. So um, almost half. Zwingli um, chose to stay in the city and care for the dying. Now this is really, really cool. Something else about where we see, again, we see just this, this is a brave man. You know, when he has his quotes about Luther, you know, I did this before Luther. Who I'm the, I'm the original. I'm the, it's almost like a rap song. Like I'm the original, not you, me, not you. You see this pride. But then moments like this where the plague breaks out, 2,000 out of the 7,000 people in Zurich, his city, die of plague. He has the means to go somewhere else to be, to make sure he's not around plague, but he stays in the city. And get this, he gets the disease. And I just pause that there for a second because I think we can learn a lot from that. I mean, isn't it a better story to say, and he stayed with those who were dying and God blessed him so much for his sacrifice and but instead, it goes like this, which is how it goes for so many um, men and women in Scripture, early church, this time frame, even now. The real story is that um, God, when you are obedient to Him, it's not that He's going to make you happy, wealthy, and uh, you know, proud, and all this kind of what what. Uh, wealthy, happy, all that kind of stuff. No, what he's going to do is he's going to be there with you even in your suffering. And that's actually what he learned. He learned about, Zwingli learned about trusting God in this moment. And it was an absolutely incredible thing in his life. And and I I really do think it changed a lot of how he um, viewed things. Now, as far as reform was concerned, because there's a moment where he, he begins to um, preach through whole books like we talked about. But then there's a moment where he starts um, saying things need to be reformed. He's going to actively use his office as the people's priest and the pastor in Zurich to start um, putting these changes in place. As he preached the Bible, he expounded the truth, and he encountered in the texts um, different things. And they were different from the historical tradition of the church and what he was seeing. And he said, this is not what I'm reading. Um, one of the, and we see some of these things sometimes, even now. You know, it doesn't matter what church you are. You're looking at the, the scripture and, and you realize, uh, um, I, I don't think we're doing this. We're doing something different. That's what he was, uh, what he was seeing. And... The kind of direct preaching was not without challenges. In 1522, some of his parishioners 
defied the church's rule about eating meat during Lent. So he had this rule where he's like, we're going to we're going to eat meat. It's just like him. You know, Lent, the, the Catholic way of doing things that at this was you don't you fast during Lent. So he said, I don't agree with that. Um, so we can eat during Lent. But because because Zwingli is Zwingli, he says, you must eat during this time because we're just going to shove it in their face. And some of his parishioners, which means people went to his church, were like, I, I don't. Is, is 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 that necessary? I mean, we're with you, Zwingli, but but is that necessary? Um. So so. He composed. Um, his own Reformation writings, which circulated his ideas throughout Switzerland. So he, so he took his his thoughts and he said, "I need to get them down so other people can read them." In fifteen twenty two, Zwingli began to work on, with other religious leaders and in the city council to bring about major reforms in the church and the state. Again, you have a mingling of church and state that I I do not think is good. It was not good in this situation, and it would not be good today. Um, in January 1523, he he wrote the 67 theses in which he rejected many beliefs, such as forced fasting, um, celibacy for the for the priests, uh, purgatory, the ways that mass is done, and types of meditation that was that had to happen. I think this is funny. I, I you remember that uh, that quote where he said, "I I was doing this before Luther was doing this. I was doing this." I feel like Luther could have come back and said, I had 95 theses, you had 67, so what's up? But I don't think that, there, there were Twitter that would have that would have been awesome, but obviously there wasn't. Um, in June 1524, the city of Zurich, following his lead, ruled that all religious images be removed from the churches. Okay, now we're getting a little intense. We're starting to see him use his, his position and his power instead of just preaching and allowing the word of God speak for itself and work through the Holy Spirit. He starts pushing things down people's throats, and now we're going to start seeing the other side of Zwingli that's not always pleasant. Also in 1524, Zwingli took yet another step to reform, and he married Anna Reinhardt. That's a big deal because he was ordained as a priest, and priests don't get married. And it's one thing to say priests are allowed to get married. It's another thing to take your a wife for yourself. Um, and she was a widow, so uh, that's not like he stole someone else's wife. But but he took Anna Reinhardt as uh, his wife. Um, all this appeared to have happened before Zwingli ever heard of Luther, as he made very clear earlier. Um, and he says this was just the work of God. But by 1527, um, which is after the 95 Theses that were nailed on the Wittenberg door by Luther by about uh, 10 years or so, um, the Reformation movement in Zurich had gained significant traction. So it took some time, but it kind of got moving and mo moving. On April 14, 1525, the Mass was officially abolished and Protestant worship service were begun in and around Zurich. So no more Mass. We're doing Protestant worship services. And you could see, again, this it's moving at a pace where, um, you know, there. what I have learned in time, um, even time as, as I was pastoring, when I was pastoring, that, you know, people adapt quicker. You know, you hear about early adapters and, you know, not it's not that people are slow, like they can't figure things out. They're, they, 
they uh, they're, they're thinking about things, okay? And you know, there were times when I was a pastor, I'd get up and say, "This is what we're doing in two weeks," and that never went well because it it seemed as though I was just using my power, my authority as a pastor, and saying, "This is where I want this thing to go," and everybody better get on this boat or jump off and drown. And that's kind of what's happening here, and it never works well. It always comes off as prideful, and honestly, I don't really think that that's how God would want us to bring about change. But Zwingli chose to implement only what was taught in Scripture, and he saw Mass as completely full of things that um, that were not in Scripture. He would say that anything that had not explicit scriptural support was rejected and it should be rejected that was going to be a law and the words of scripture were to be preached and read out loud and 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 uh, the sermons by whoever's teaching need to be just from scripture Um, the entire congregation not merely the clergy received both bread and wine in a simple communion service so this is a big change for him so we're changing preaching we're changing how we do worship. We're changing how the building looks. We're changing the order of worship. We're changing communion. And we're doing this at a state level and also at a theological level. And he's moving pretty quickly over the course of about 10 years. Um, even what the ministers wore, even what the pastors wore changed. Um, he did not want there to be um, any kind of jewelry or anything that separated the ministers from the people which we would say hey i don't have a problem with that if you want to wear a suit that's fine but you know i've always been turned off by churches i've gone to where there's thrones where you have like the pastor sitting in a throne behind um, whoever's giving announcements getting ready to stand up from their throne i know that's cultural to some degree but it still seems off-putting to some degree um so basically praying to mary was forbidden um indulgences so giving money to the Catholic Church so that loved ones would be moved from purgatory onto heaven. Um, That is a ridiculous, I I would say it's a ridiculous thing to believe in, but he also said that. He said, these are banned, um, and he said, we're going to break with Rome, and that's that's it, guys. We're done. I'm the people's priest. I'm the pastor. Um, We have reformed this place. We are good everything is good. And I think that's just kind of how Zwingli was. I mean, but you know, there are going to be problems when you just move into a city and you're just like, hey, we're changing this, we're changing this, we're changing this, we're changing. Hey, Zwingli, uh, why are we changing this stuff? We're changing it. I'll tell you after we change it. That's kind of the vibe you get. And that does not always go good. Okay, now we come to one of the I think uh, one of the sadder moments in um, Zwingli's ministry, his time in Zurich, again, the situation is he is the people's priest. He's kind of uh, the celebrity pastor. He holds almost like a political office. There are still magistrates that are in control, but he has asserted himself as the one who is making sure that reform is taking place. Now, as he's in ministry there um, in Zurich, he has a group of people called the Anabaptists or the Rebaptizers. And they're a very radical reform movement that began in Zurich, the same city that Zwingli's at, in 1523. 
And though Zwingli had made a lot of changes, there were people such as these Anabaptists and rebaptizers where um, the reform had just simply not gone enough. For the gone far enough for the Anabaptists, the issue of baptizing believers only was secondary to separation from the Roman Catholic Church. The Anabaptists sought an entire reconstruction of the church that was akin to a revolution. Remember, we talked about the difference between the American Revolution that was tethered to um, the preamble of the Constitution and the French Revolution that was tethered to nothing but wanting change and being radical. And the American Revolution, um, it brought together a, a new nation, a new government, a new way of doing government. It it. It took the changes that needed to happen and brought them to order, where the French Revolution, um, the revolution just exploded into bloodshed until Napoleon took the reins at the end. So here we have the Anabaptists that were bringing reform, past reform, into revolution. Everything needs to be changed in the church. Now, Zwingli saw the Anabaptist proposals and what they wanted to do as too radical. And what he did was he sat down with the Anabaptist leaders and he said, look, there are some people who are having a hard time moving into the reforms we have already set up, and you're just making it more difficult. He counseled these Anabaptists, and and what he really said was, They must bear with the weaker brethren who were gradually accepting the teachings of the Reformers. But this approach is not good enough for the Anabaptists. And the magistrates of Zurich, so the ones who are um, in charge of, you know, politically what's happening in that city. And remember, it's within its own content, within its own state. Back again, there's 13 Swiss Confederation states. Zurich is within one. And ordered by the magistrates of all Zurich for all infants in the city to be baptized proved too explosive. So this to Anabaptists seems like we're moving backwards from what um, Zwingli wanted to do. When the magistrates, really what happens is the magistrates see what's happening with the Anabaptists. They're like, we got to draw a line somewhere. we got to get this to stop. So they say, look, what's going to happen is every infant in the, in the entire city is going to be baptized. Um, and that was a very Catholic way of doing things. And the Anabaptists just exploded. And what they did was they were marching through the streets. They were holding up signs. There was loud protests. There was... They were sitting in multiple places of business. I don't know if this sounds uh, familiar to any of you about anything. Um, And rather than baptizing their infants, as they were told to do by the magistrates, they baptized each other by pouring or immersion in 1525, all of them. So now we have battle lines have been drawn. And they also rejected Zwingli's affirmation of the city council's authority over the church affairs and advocated total separation of church and state. Now, I told you earlier in this podcast that I think one of the problems that we are going to see or we have seen in the life of of, uh, Zwingli when it comes to his ministry in Zurich, which is his life's ministry is in Zurich, is 
he wants reform, but there's a moment where he decides to use political means to make that happen instead of just using the Word of God. So there's a moment where he says, I'm just going to preach the book of Matthew. I'm just going to preach through Scripture. But then he moves. It's almost like he decides people are not moving quick enough for him. So he uses the political system and he forces things to take place, which, again, creates a problem. And I think that actually what we see with the Anabaptist is to some degree a... Um, it, it is to some degree it is it is the the consequence of how Zwingli has decided to use his authority to reform. So ultimately, this ends in tragedy. The Anabaptist leaders were arrested and charged with revolutionary teaching, which is um, which is interesting because Zwingli's teaching would have been revolutionary. Uh, what nine, ten years earlier, but they 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 pushed it as far as they can. The uh, the reformers that are not Anabaptists they lash out. Uh, some of the Anabaptists, well, many of them were put to death by drowning as kind of like a in your face, making fun of them for their um, Anabaptist way of uh, thinking. And there's there's debate on whether Zwingli um, consented in the death sentences of these Anabaptists that were killed or he wasn't. But bottom line, he was in an authority position. He was in a religious authority position. This happened under his nose, and we have no indication at all that he felt that this was something that needed to be stopped. So again, this is a very sad moment for Zwingli because in a man that we know, it's, it's just not for us to say that Zwingli um, maybe he was unaware, or that's not possible. Well, maybe he just wasn't the type of guy that was going to stand up. That's not possible because he's done that his whole you know, career, his whole life. Well, maybe he doesn't have conviction, and he doesn't feel he knows on either side of where he's at. If we know anything about Zwingli, we know he knows exactly where he is on everything. Around the same time, Zwingli and Luther came head-to-head. And I see this as like a Tyson-Hollyfield fight, if you are old enough to even remember these guys. Um, Heavyweight fighters coming together, fight each other, you know. Um, I could use a lot of different athletic illustrations. But uh, this was the moment where Zwingli and Luther come together and they actually disagree on something. And history shows us that both of them were pretty bullheaded when need be. A controversy began to come between Zwingli and Luther over the Lord's Supper. And Luther held to um, consubstantiation. And uh, consubstantiation. And that's the belief that the body and blood of Christ were present in, through, or under the elements. There is, he contended, a real presence of Christ in the elements, though he differed from the Roman Catholic teaching of transubstantiation, which holds that the elements change into the body and blood of Christ when it is blessed by the priest at Mass. And that's a little confusing, but that is, uh, 
that is what they or what what he held to. Zwingli though adopted the position that the Lord's Supper is mainly a memorial of Christ's death, a symbolic remembrance, which is really most evangelicals today. That's we would hold to Zwingli's view and say that um, the bread and the juice or the bread and the wine is symbolic and that it doesn't actually become the body and blood of Christ. Not to get too deep into it, but uh, the difference between Luther's view and the Roman Catholic view is Luther would say, well, God is everywhere, therefore he is also in the the bread and the, the wine. Um, where Catholics would say the bread and the wine, until it's consecrated by the priest, when that happens, it becomes the actual body of Christ, whereas Zwingli says neither of those things are necessarily true. It's just something we do in remembrance of of the Lord, uh, communion, that is. In an attempt to bring unity to the Reform movement, because what was happening is they were kind of tearing to some degree um, what would be allies in this Reformation of the Church, a a, a a moment, a time was they were brought together in 1529, specifically Luther and Zwingli, um, to talk about the um, the differences they had, and the two reformers appeared face to face. But there was also men like Martin Brucer, um, and other Protestant leaders. And they argued on different. So what happened was that it ended up being a, a a get together where they went through what would be fourteen um, or fifteen, fifteen rather items of the Reformation, as the Reformation was giving birth to what would be the Protestant Church. And they believed, or they came together on fourteen of them. But the one that was different was this uh, this this butting of heads between Luther and Zwingli on the Lord's Supper. They agreed in principle to 14 of the 15 items put before them, the church-state relationship, um, uh, infant baptism, the historical continuity of the church, and, and a lot more. But no agreement could be reached regarding the Lord's Supper. In fact, Luther said this, Zwingli was a very good man, yet of different spirit and hence refused to accept his hand of fellowship offered to him with tears. To those around him, to the friends, Luther um, Luther said, and he commented of Zwingli and his supporters, I suppose God has blinded them. And the failure to find agreement resulted in a strong emotion on both sides. When the two sides departed, Zwingli cried out in tears. So there definitely was something extremely emotional that took place between Luther and Zwingli. They disagreed on this one thing, but it tore them apart. And I think you see here just the depth of um the depth of the depth of resolve and conviction that these men had where they just were not going to budge on what they believed the scripture said even if it makes for um even if it makes for seemingly a gap in their relationship. We see this in the Bible, too. Um, you know, Paul has a situation where he no longer wants to travel with uh, Barnabas because Barnabas wants to bring John Mark with him. And he says that 
he doesn't want that to take place. So they, they bid farewell, um, still on the same mission, but um, in a place where they can no longer be together. And I think, you know, we talked our, on our last podcast about um, George Whitfield and John Wesley, where we find throughout church history men and women that are have just staunch resolve um, to the point that they want to be close to people who feel and think differently, but there's always a line that's there that they cannot cross. So um, that was the moment where Zwingli and Luther had their run in together. Now, Zwingli's ministry, as we've gone through it and his history, seems like a lot has been um, just, there's a lot there. But actually, his ministry and his life was a, was rather short. And I want to tell you about his death, because it is one of the strange ironies. Um, Zwingli, who earlier had opposed the practice of using mercenaries in war, died on a battlefield in 1531. I remember, we, I won't go into the whole thing again, but remember the mercenary issue that was taking place. Remember that out of the, there's, there's 13 Swiss, Swiss Confederation states, um, the, the states would send their young men, and, and then the state would be paid for sending those young men. The young men would come back, and they wouldn't be paid for anything, but the state would be, uh, would be paid. It was almost like an indentured servitude of, of, of being a warrior. Um, but in an irony of how Zwingli literally preached against this practice, he died on a battlefield in battle. Um, but again, I think this could have been maybe one of his sadder moments. You know, again, there's moments where Zwingli really shined. I think the, the high point of his ministry, I think, is when he said, I'm going to throw back the book, the calendar book of what I'm supposed to, to preach about. I'm just going to preach the book of Matthew and through the Bible, ex, expository preaching. That's what I'm going to do. But in his passion, there are moments where the, things get carried away, and we'll see this in his death. It'll be very sad, but, but we'll also honor him as well. Um, an escalating conflict between Protestants and Catholics had cantons and arms. So there were states that were rising up against each other to fight each other based on being Protestants and Catholics. And there was a line that was being drawn between some states and other states. Think about the American Civil War, perhaps, um, where you have some states, um, if they were independent, more independent than what they were in the American Civil War, and they, they take issue with each other, they bind together as alliances, and they fought like the North and the South did. And war broke out. In the city of Zurich, who, um, or where Zwingli spent his entire ministry and who was in a political position but also was a preacher, went, went to battle to defend itself against five the five invading Catholic cantons from the South. So Zurich in the North, the North... Um, state, we'll say, was part of the Northern Alliance, or the North, and they went to battle with the South. Zurich, being a part of a state in the North that was Protestant, they went to battle with the, Cap with the Catholics in the South. Now, again, this is... Uh, this is uncomfortable, okay? As a Christian, this is uncomfortable, because you have Protestants who 
are trying to reform the church by literally attacking the church with arms. Okay, um, even Luther, when the Peasants' War broke out, and and when his writings were used to to indicate change that needed to happen politically, and it kind of went beyond what he was. Uh, what he had been talking about in his 95 thesis and his bondage of the will and the other things that he was writing, Luther says, look, you're going too far with this. I'm not, I'm not calling for a revolution of arms. I'm asking for us to look at the scripture and come together as, as brothers and sisters and see where this goes. Well, Zwingli got completely pulled into that in these last moments of his life to the point where he fights with Zurich. So not just as a chaplain, he actually goes to fight. And again, this is a sad moment because it seems like so many of the principles that he preached about before, he, 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 it's his desire that this change must happen as rapidly as possible that he actually goes to fight. So he is the field chaplain. I guess that is the case. But before he would be the chaplain for the for the mercenary soldiers and and he'd go do the last rites if you remember us talking about that now he heads into this battle in 1531 and he is clad in armor and he is holding a battle axe which was a very intense weapon of that time so here you have the pastor and his axe a pastor and his axe He's got his battle axe, and he goes into battle. On October 11th, 1531, he is severely wounded. Not killed, but he's wounded. And the enemy soldiers, the Catholics, find him wounded, and upon seeing him, they killed him. Now, Zwingli was just kind of uh, one of the FBI most wanted list on the Catholic list, as one of those reformers where they were just out to get him. He was just a prize because he was so outspoken. He had just uh, pushed, you know, he, he almost uh, um, almost persecuted Catholics. So when they saw him, um, they immediately killed him. The southern states, the forces then subjected his corpse to disgraceful treatment. So the, uh, the leaders of the southern states... They they brought his body back, and they did what they would do in times in these times to assert the dominance over the um, the vanquished enemy. So they take him, they they give him disgraceful treatment. They quarter him, um, which means they they cut him in four ways: his body, they hacked his remains to pieces. And they burned those pieces. Then they mixed his ashes with dung and scattered them all over the southern states. What a horrible ending. And it's horrible. I think part of the reason it's so horrible is it's... It's not like uh, Timothy or Polycarp or John Hess or you know the the the, the myriad of these Christians who um, were humbly uh, worshiping the Lord, doing what they were doing, praying, and they were burned at the stake or um, 
they were stoned, or you know, Paul says some were sawn two, sawed in two. Um, you know, I just I I I one of the, one of the most intense books I've ever read on martyrdom is Fox's Book of Martyrs, and I read that in graduate school, and um, it's filled with men and women who, in humility, give themselves over to the Lord. Okay, and I think it it does take something away from Zwingli, the way he died. Because some would say, well, he was brave because he was fighting for the Protestant cause. But I would say that you can be brave and fight in a multitude of ways for your cause. And where other reformers, Luther included, wanted reform to take place through conversations, through an understanding of what the scripture says about things of worship and church leadership and um, the sacraments. Zwingli had that passion too, but at some point he decided to put on his armor, grab his axe, and head into battle. And I would never... I would never put, I mean, this is probably not the case, but I don't know if that's something God is honoring. I don't think, I don't know if God is honoring um, the individual who maybe if they, even if they are right, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go fight and kill those who aren't. I just don't think that's biblical. I don't think that's how Jesus would have it. And some would argue, well, the Old Testament, when you get into that and you know, you're wrong, Matt, and this happens sometimes. And all throughout this time, Protestants have been killing, you know, Catholics, and Catholics were killing Protestants. And But we're zeroing in on the life of Zwingli, and we've learned so much about him. And I'm just saying that I think it's a shame for two reasons. It's a shame the way he died, um, because there is something about um, the gruesomeness of the way he died that is just gruesome. And there's another aspect of it where it's gruesome and it's more gruesome because this was the pastor of Zurich who took up arms against the Catholics and now it's more gruesome because of that. Now, Luther had a quote uh, that I just want to read for you as we wrap up here. He said, from the beginning of my Reformation, again, it's... I just have to point out, like Luther, I think it takes men like Luther or Zwingli, Zwingli to kind of get the ball rolling because even in that language, from the beginning of my Reformation, he says, well, tonight, come on, it's not yours. I mean, we, there's stuff going on all over Europe. Even with Zwingli, he's going on for a couple of years before you did your thing. But he says this, um, from the beginning of my Reformation, I have asked God to send me neither dreams nor visions nor angels, but to give me the right understanding of his word, the Holy Scriptures. For as long as I have God's word, I know that I am walking in his way, and I shall not fall into the air, into any air, or delusion. And I just want to uh, remind us of the thought. The The only reform that is legitimate and lasting is that which is tethered to timeless truth. The only reform that is legitimate and lasting is that which is tethered to timeless truth. 
Now, we need to just uh, know that. I mean, we uh, Zwingli's, Zwingli's life was a... Um, Zwingli's life was a roller coaster. There's things we cringe at. There's things we're, we're impressed by. There's things that break our heart. There's things that excite us as we go through his life. It's exciting life. It wasn't long, but an exciting life. So even through all that that we, that we heard, why is Zwingli still someone that we can read about in church history and respect, even with his faults? Well, it's because even with his faults, the Reformation that he was attached to, even when, he made, even when he used means that he shouldn't have used, the Reformation itself was tied to the timeless truth of the Word of God. Timeless truth of the Word of God. Yeah, but you know, he, he killed the Anabaptists. He, 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 he knew that they were being drowned. Yeah, but what he believed... The belief was deeper than him and his action. It was tethered to the word of God. Yeah, but he went to uh, battle the Catholics with a battle axe. So he looked like he's like Gimli going into war. Lord of the Rings reference there for you. Yeah, but it's still the Reformation, how he viewed the word of God, communion, the church, the hierarchy of the church, the beauty of the church, the sanctity of the church, the holiness of God. Throughout the craziness, even as he ran onto that battlefield, wielding an axe in his armor, ready to kill Catholics, God still used him in his air because he brought things about that were tethered to timeless truth. This whole story um, reminded me of a verse, Ephesians 6, 17. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. There's a lot about Zwingli I love. There's a lot about Zwingli I love. But I do wish at the end of his life, instead of putting on that armor to fight, that he would have taken on the helmet of salvation Instead of wielding that battle axe to cut down as many Catholics as possible, he would have focused on the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, which is the root, what got a hold of him, that began to change him when he said, I will only preach through the book of Matthew. So his life was crazy. His life was, was all over the place. God used it. There was one theme. There's one theme. The Reformation themes were the theme of his life. Even if he went high or he went low, that was his theme. And I would just challenge you and say, is that not your life? Is that not my life? Honestly, honestly, is that not your life? Where hopefully you hold to the timeless truth of the things that you hold valuable and you that you the convictions you have you don't always hold them sometimes you're forceful with them sometimes you back off of them sometimes you don't pay attention to them sometimes you're a hypocrite but you always are tethered to the timeless truth hopefully that's the word of god but i'm sure there are things that you hold dear